What percentage of your patients do you think are like type A lunatics like myself? Oh my goodness, they're not lunatics. That's I <laughs> honestly the majority Prone are to anxiety. Yes, that's extremely common. I would probably say 75% at least are type A. Okay, yes. that actually makes me feel <laughs> a lot better. Yeah. So you're not the only one. Phew. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Been There, Injected That is a TMI podcast about going through infertility and all the hormone injections, awkward moments, and nervous breakdowns along the way. I'm Elise Ash. Picture this. You've been trying to get pregnant for two years. The first year was pretty casual, lighthearted, maybe even fun. We're making a baby! Year two, you're getting nervous. Is something wrong with my body? Are we doing this right? You start buying ovulation kits, Googling late at night. Maybe you go to your OBGYN and start the gateway drug to all infertility treatments. Clomid. You have a few tests done, perhaps, but something inside is telling you it's time. It's time for the big guns, a fertility specialist. You Google around and find a clinic near you. Maybe you read some reviews, or maybe you don't have a lot of options, so there's really no point in reading reviews. You call to schedule that first fertility clinic consultation, and they say... Okay, ma'am, that'll be $300, and the earliest appointment is in five months. What. The. Hell. We waited months for our fertility clinic meeting, so by the time the date actually rolled around, there'd been quite a bit of buildup. I was anxious. I didn't know what to expect. Should I come with questions? Would they be doing any tests at this appointment? Oh my god, what if I cried in front of the doctor? Spoiler alert, I cried many times in front of my fertility doctor, but I wasn't the first to do that and I most certainly wasn't the last. There's a lot of pressure in those early days. Financial pressure, emotional pressure. Time seems to just stop. A lot of information is thrown at you. You have tough conversations with your partner. You look at your finances. Can we get rid of Netflix? Cut down on groceries? How the hell are we gonna pay for this? Deciding on a doctor and treatment plan is one of the most important breakpoints of your infertility journey, so it's important to feel prepared and empowered. That's why I'm so excited about our special guest today. We have Margaret Sunheim, who is a women's health nurse practitioner, and she actually was my fertility nurse when Brad and I were going through IVF, and I'm just so happy to have you here today, Margaret. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, you know, where you work, where you live, um, all that kind of good stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I work at the Colorado Center for Reproductive Medicine. Um, Our office is in Edina, Minnesota, but our actual headquarters or main clinic where everything started is in Denver, Colorado. So, Margaret, why didn't you originally decide to become a nurse? Did you always know that you wanted to be a nurse? Yeah, so it sounds a little bit cliche, but I knew I wanted to be a nurse because I wanted to help people. And the healthcare field and the science behind it really fascinated me. And I love one-on-one contact with people and developing those relationships. And if you can educate and help take care of a person and make them a better, you know, whole person. Um, that's just what really drew me to healthcare and nursing. Awesome. And what made you interested in helping families trying to deal with, you know, the emotional fallout of infertility in that angle? Yeah, it's an area that I felt that I could really make a difference in. And it's so specialized. So I just felt like I had the heart for it too, where I could really get to know people, establish those relationships and help them through the process and guide them on a personal level, but then 
the science to back it up too, really helping them and explaining what test results mean and what needs to come um, in the, next in the journey. Yeah, it's crazy when you're going through fertility treatments and you hear all these acronyms like AMH, FSH, and right. all these things, and you're like, what does any of this mean? It's so important to have somebody who can help explain that to you in human terms. Right, exactly. Breaking it down and yeah, explaining it on a very basic level so that people understand it better. Do people have similar questions? Like what are some of the most frequently asked questions that you hear from patients? Um, Some of the most frequently asked questions, of course, it's the worry, can it happen for me? Um, Do you think I could become pregnant? Uh, Maybe if people have recurrent miscarriages, the big question for that is why is it happening? Mm -hmm. And do you think we can figure out a way to um, make a pregnancy continue and not miscarry? Right. Mm -hmm. So what is your favorite part of your job? What are the parts that um, really just light you up? My favorite part of it is that I really get to know the patients and their spouses and sometimes even family members beyond that. So really getting to establish that relationship and then just helping them through the process. So all the education that goes with it, explaining what test results mean, letting them know what's coming up next, Um, what to expect step by step. And then, of course, the great successes. The excitement is when a cycle works, we have good results. Um, When there's a pregnancy, when a patient delivers, such good news. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I can't even imagine how great it must feel to be able to know that you were partially responsible for helping someone really achieve this dream that they've had forever. It's amazing. It's so fun to be a part of that journey. Yeah. Yeah, I can only imagine. And then what is your least favorite part? So the hardest part is, it honestly probably is when there's a failed cycle or repeated attempts. Maybe we didn't get eggs or embryos that just didn't grow in the lab. Or if there's a pregnancy that stopped growing. So whether it's the pregnancy test was negative or it started out, but it wasn't as strong as we had hoped and the numbers don't rise like they should. Or, you know, we might be doing an ultrasound and when we expect to see a little baby in a heartbeat and there isn't one. So those are the tough parts. How do you emotionally navigate like some of these ups and downs? You're such a warm-hearted person and such an empath. Like I would imagine that being right there along with your patients is exciting when things are going well and just devastating when they're not. And are there any like self-care rituals that you participate in or things that you do personally to try to, you know, guard your own heart through all this? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, we certainly on the fertility side, when you work in the clinic, you become so invested in these patients and you want them to succeed. So we're right there with them cheering when things are great and we are crying and really sad when the opposite happens and it didn't go the way we expected. Um, I think self-care is just really trying to carve out some time for myself and whether it's just having downtime, alone time, um, getting a massage every now and then, acupuncture is always great, and just having friends that you can talk to. And I think, you know, when you work in a fertility clinic, you have a special bond with your coworkers. So we really rely on each other to um, kind of talk through different situations too. Yeah, it's funny. I can imagine being in the fertility industry, just the conversations you have over lunch are so different than in any other kind of professional setting. They are. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Yeah, they're all about sperm. and (laughs) Yes. Things that would normally be considered workplace harassment are just, you know, a regular Monday at lunch. It is, exactly. (laughs) So when do you think is the ideal time for couples to come to a fertility clinic? Right, yeah. So 
As a general rule, if both partners are healthy, they don't have any chronic medical medical conditions. Um, if you're under 35 years old, the general consensus is to give it a year trying on your own. And if you're 35 years or older, to give it about six months. Um, but if a partner or both have some illnesses, chronic medical problems, uh, maybe really, um, you know, diabetes, um, difficulty controlling a thyroid level, history of different illnesses, then those parameters are changed and you might want to follow up with a fertility specialist sooner than the year or the six month mark. Got it. When you say wait, you know, a year after trying for couples who are Mm -hmm. maybe under 35, are you counting, you know, a year of active charting, trying ovulation sticks? Or is it like basically from the year that you, the date that you stop taking birth control or like pull the goalie? Or is it really like, no, we need to see a year of active charting? Um, You know, initially when you're first starting out, we don't want people necessarily, if they're healthy, um, we don't want them stressing about ovulation predictor kits and charting things and keeping track of all this data. Um, especially if a woman has regular menstrual cycles, you have a pretty good idea um, where you might be ovulating and your OBGYN can kind of help you and give you some tips. And really those first few months, if you have regular cycles, it's just you don't want to think about the science piece of it and maybe just try to time it out every other day for like that mid-cycle period. But certainly if you don't have regular menstrual cycles or you feel like there might be an issue on the male side, if um, if you're with a male partner, um, then you'd want to, of course, follow up and visit with somebody sooner. Kind of wish I had a time machine to go back and like yeah. tell young Elise because right. I feel like we didn't have mm-hmm. any of like the chill, lighthearted fun part. It was just like mm-hmm. immediately... That's so hard. Charting and, so many and intense. People experience that. Exactly. What percentage of your patients do you think are like type A lunatics like myself? Oh my goodness, they're not lunatics. That's I <laughs> honestly the majority Prone are, to anxiety. Yes. That's extremely common. I would probably say seventy five percent at least are type A. Okay. Yes. That actually makes me feel <laughs> a lot better. Yeah. So you're not the only one. Phew. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of us neurotic, anxious people out there. So yeah. Oh my goodness. Well, a society kind of you know, you can read things on the internet and you think, oh, I'm supposed to be pregnant after two tries. So um, just society in general, what people say, what's on the internet, it can lead you down a path where you get stressed really easily. Totally. And you're trained to think that you're going to get pregnant so easily just by like looking at a guy when you're in high school. And so the expectations are so Mm -hmm. misaligned. They are. So all of a sudden you're like, am I doing this wrong? Exactly. Right. But, you know, on the same token, you know, if you feel you have been trying, you've been having intercourse mid-cycle, and you just don't feel good about things or you're worried, it doesn't seem right, you can always follow up with an OBGYN just to check in and see if you're going down the right path. Is there anything else you need to add in? I think that's a really great point about kind of being in tune with your body. Mm -hmm. And even if things look 100% on paper, they might not be. Like, for example, I had super normal, typical cycles, 28 days, like pretty much you know, you could set Mm -hmm. your watch to it. But at the same time, I just had an intuition that something was wrong and that ended up being right. So I think it's kind of a mix of 
sure, you want to give your body a chance to naturally right. conceive. And there's definitely no point in rushing if there isn't a medical need. Right. But at the same time, I think there's something to be said for listening to your body and your intuition. And if something just doesn't right. feel right, like there's validity to that too. Absolutely. And not only would your OBGYN validate that, but so would a fertility center. So we do have people sometimes come to us before that recommend, recommended amount of time. And we'll we'll talk to them, educate them, run some tests, and then just kind of, if everything looks good at that point, encourage them to go back and keep trying for a few more months. And then if nothing happens, follow up with us again. So yeah, that is very valid. Are there special circumstances that would warrant a fast track to a clinic? So um, special circumstances that would warrant that, for sure, if by chance... Um, you happen to run some basic labs at your OBGYN or primary care physician where they ran an AMH or an anti-malarian hormone level, and all of a sudden that level came back really low, indicating you might have decreased reserve, ovarian reserve, um, that would warrant a fast track um, because we would want to further investigate that. Same with if a woman has um, just been recently diagnosed with cancer and is thinking about fertility preservation before she undergoes chemotherapy, treatment, radiation, that's an absolute fast track. Um, Same with like if you have a history of diabetes, thyroid disease, other diseases that can impact um, your fertility and then when you're pregnant. Um, We work in cooperation with perinatal groups and those physician groups to try to come up with the best plan for that patient. We'll be right back. So one of the things that I'm personally really bad at is asking for help. I hate asking for help. And that vulnerability stuff that Brene Brown talks about is so real. Uh, But I'm going to ask for your help right now because I need it. Um, So if you have five minutes, either right now or on the bus home from work, or if there's a quick ad break during your Hulu binge, please take a second to rate this podcast. The best way for other fertility warriors to find Been There Injected That is for our listeners to rate us and write us a review. So please go ahead and do that. And thank you so much. Back to the show. What are some good ways for patients to find the right clinic or doctor? Like, how do you know if a clinic or provider is going to be a good fit for you? Mm -hmm. That's a really good question. So um, first of all, you know, if you have friends, if you're willing to kind of talk about it and or, you know, people that have gone through um, infertility or had trouble, you know, conceiving, reaching out to friends and family if they have references Um, There's a lot to be said for that. If somebody's had a good experience with a physician or a group and they recommend you go there, I would certainly check them out or look at their website. Um, Another important piece that's recently changing is more and more insurance is providing some coverage, which is amazing. Yeah. Such good news. So you would want to check with your insurance to see if there's a particular fertility clinic or two that is in network or you have some benefits through. And then certainly research on the internet. Every infertility clinic um, has, you know, a website that lists biographies of their physicians, um, their staff, lab data, statistics for IVF cycles. Um, It's a wealth of information. Do some clinics specialize in particular diagnoses? Like, for example, if you're dealing with male factor infertility or if you're dealing with endometriosis or PCOS or something, Mm -hmm. do you think that some clinics might be better equipped to handle those or does it not necessarily matter? I think across the board, reproductive endocrinologists are pretty equal on those things. 
Um, I do know that um, Colorado Center for Reproductive Medicine, where I work, one thing that where we stand out and it's a little bit different is because we have clinics throughout the nation and then we, in Canada, I know historically our clinics have been looked at as a last resort or mm. women have tried um, cycles and have had treatment at other clinics and then they come to us as a last chance. Um, it's almost like the male clinic of the infertility world. Um, that's certainly not all that we're known for, but we certainly um, have dealt with many cases where it didn't look like there was a chance and we were able to achieve a pregnancy. And of course, we do everything else um, from the ground up, starting with basic fertility workups. But that's one thing where CCRM really stands out is um, just that we have such a significant science base and that's all in Denver. Why is that? Like, why does CCRM have such a distinguished lab and you know so why right. why do you see so many successes after you mm-hmm. know so many failed attempts at maybe other clinics mm-hmm. it's all so heavily research based and so denver the colorado clinic is continually running new research trials and based on that data what we see and what we find out we're able to implement new clinic protocols um, trying new medications for ivf cycles for the frozen embryo transfers, um, doing the chromosome and genetic testing. Um, One of the latest things that we're doing is we can screen embryos for um, cancer genes so you can eliminate that cancer gene um, from future generations, which is beyond amazing. So it really all boils down to the science and then just to have that personal touch too, where each patient's story is so important and we're there to help them. We're on their side. We want to achieve that pregnancy and that family with them. How do you recommend patients prepare for their first appointment with a fertility clinic? What can they do in advance? How can they prepare? How can they make the most out of that first appointment? Mm -hmm. So the first thing would be communication with their partner and really thinking about all the questions they have, writing them down, and being really honest with their partner about what their concerns and worries are and what they hope to find out when they go to this fertility clinic. So bring a list in, and then gathering your past medical information. So maybe a few copies of annual exams, lab results, any tests that have been done elsewhere, um, and making sure that's at the clinic ahead of time before your actual consult. And then just reading up on that particular clinic on the internet, reading the website um, that each clinic has, and you know, looking at the data, the statistics, um, learning a little bit about the providers so you feel like you know what you're walking into. And then we always like to have the ASRM or American Society for Reproductive Medicine in-depth medical history filled out ahead of time. So that covers your medical history, um, personal social history, family history, all these different things so in-depth. So we have a better idea of what your background is when you come into. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I remember um, at my first clinic appointment, I had my long list. And of mm-hmm. course, I'm like very type A and had all my questions. Mm-hmm. And my husband, Brad, and I had gone through all the things we wanted to get out of it. And I remember looking at those questions in the appointment and kind of being embarrassed by some of them no. and thinking like, oh my gosh, am I going to sound really dumb if I ask this? And Never. And my doctor at CCRM 
was like, did you read every single question on that list? Let's go down one at a time. Are you skipping some? Like, she called me out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, thank you so much because I was going to skip some. Right. Because I felt embarrassed or like I should know or like, oh, that's really Googleable information. I shouldn't be like wasting yep. her time with these really simple biology questions. But she was like, let's go one at a time. Do you have a copy of your questions? I would like to see them. I can help you. I was like, wow, this is so different than most provider appointments where they're just right. kind of like in, out, got to mm-hmm. go to the next patient. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I mean, we that's why we're there is to educate and no question is too small or ever stupid um, because we want you to learn and feel like you're part of the process because you are every step of the way. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. just funny because so many of us either didn't have sex ed ever or had right. it a really long time ago. Like I remember basically having to relearn so much about my mm-hmm. cycle and ovulation and I mean – it was just a really steep learning curve, and I can't imagine kind of going into that appointment without having any knowledge or basis of information and basically starting at square one. Yes, and that sometimes happens. Yeah. We're, we're really at square one, and that's okay. Um, we love to educate, like I said. Mm-hmm. So, Margaret, what kinds of questions do you think patients should be asking their doctor? And then what kinds of questions should the patients be expecting to answer from the doctor? Mm-hmm. Right. So um, to ask their physician, you could definitely ask, you know, how comfortable, especially if you have like a background in medical problems or you feel your past medical history is a little overwhelming, which it never is, Um, you know, asking the provider if they feel comfortable treating this, how many cases have they seen like this before? What are the statistics and what are the success rates? You know, if you choose a path, so say you go down the ovulation induction insemination route, what's a typical success rate for each cycle? Or if you go down the in vitro route, how does that look? If you do in vitro and then you just do a fresh transfer versus doing, you know, an in vitro cycle and then doing a frozen transfer or when you add in chromosome testing, how does that look? How does my age impact fertility, that's a huge um, thing to talk about too. And then what will the provider be asking? They will want to know every little detail about both partners' past history. So looking at medications that you're on, surgeries you may have had, everything about your menstrual cycle, past medical history for both family history personal social history. So what do you know, do you smoke? Do you drink alcohol? How much caffeine do you consume in a day? Any drug use, everything that we can find out to then give you the information to get into a better place to move forward and do the treatment and hopefully achieve a pregnancy. So what are the first few types of medical tests a fertility clinic might perform? What are really those first few tests Mm -hmm. that help you either determine a possible treatment path or can help you eliminate what some issues might be? So the first step is, of course, the national consult. And once you meet with your provider, um, you usually get a list of what needs to come next. And most, you know, fertility clinics will draw day two, day three labs and an AMH. That gives us a snapshot of ovarian function, ovarian reserve. And that day two, day three needs to be performed on day two or three of your cycle. Exactly. It does. So if you come into your appointment and you're on day 15, then you have to wait for that day one to happen again to get your labs? Um, For the day two, three labs, yes, you would. An AMH can be drawn any part of your cycle and all the other labs can as well. But your day two, day three labs do have to be day two or day three to be the most accurate. 
If you have already had your AMH tested, mm-hmm. how often would you need to get that rechecked? You know, how much can that really change? Typically, you check it once a year if you're younger. Um, if you have an, a history of over, decreased ovarian reserve or there's advanced maternal age, um, we might check it every six months. If a patient's been on oral contraceptives a really long time, that can suppress your AMH a little bit. Hmm. And so then if you came to our clinic and you'd been on um, the contraceptives you know, for several months or years, and then we're checking an AMH and it came back really low, we would recheck that again maybe two months later or three months later, but typically once a year. So what other kinds of tests would you mm-hmm. probably do at the beginning as well? So then we do a lot of other blood work. So that's looking um, top to bottom. So like complete blood count, comprehensive metabolic profile, making sure your blood sugar is in a good range, um, checking thyroid function, prolactin level. We screen both partners for communicable diseases. And then um, we order a pelvic ultrasound. So it's going to be a really in-depth look at your uterus from side to side, top to bottom, 3D imaging of the endometrial cavity, um, taking a look at those ovaries as well. And then depending on what route you're going, you might have an HSG or a hysterosalpingogram done or a hysteroscopy. And sometimes you'll have both done. And the HSG looks at your fallopian tubes to see if they're open. And then the other thing that it looks at is to see if there's a hydrosalpinx where maybe fluid has built up and it's sitting in those tubes. And sometimes that can back up into the endometrial cavity and cause issues. So those are some of the things we look at with that. The hysteroscopy is looking within the endometrial cavity to see are there any fibroids, polyps, um, any scar tissue or adhesions that could get in the way of that perfect embryo implanting and growing. I remember the HSG test was the most painful test and like honestly the most painful part of any of it. It can be. Luckily it's really short usually. That's true. Yes and some patients really do fine and they hardly feel it. Yeah that's one of those things where either I feel like I hear people Mm -hmm. be like oh it wasn't even anything and other people being like I was traumatized how would I ever go through a pregnancy? (laughs) Exactly it could go either way yeah. Yeah (laughs) and then what are some of the tests you run for for male partners? Yes, so the men, um, they do have the communicable disease testing, and then we always do a semen analysis. In our lab, just because at a fertility center, the criteria is much stricter than just at a general clinic when they do a semen analysis, so we have many more parameters that we look at. Um, So usually we start out with a semen analysis and communicable disease testing. What are some of the different components of those semen analysis? Um, Like, what are some of the things that you look for? So we look at the motility. So I guess in general, first, it's the total amount of sperm that are there. And then we look at how many are alive, swimming and moving, um, how many have normal shapes. And that's really broken down to see um, are there normal heads, necks, tails, And then are they actually progressing? So are they swimming and moving forward versus just wiggling and moving in the same place or spinning in circles? And then, of course, we note if there's any um, white blood cells that could maybe indicate an infection. Um, We measure the pH. We look at the amount. So we do learn a lot from that. I should also add, um, we do offer genetic screening for both partners also, um, and that's a blood test. And that screens to see if you are a carrier for like over 200 plus genetic diseases. That's always recommended. Yeah, that sounds Mm -hmm. like 
important information right. to have earlier rather than later. Right, exactly. So what are some lifestyle changes that your clinic recommends women and men make while they're going through treatments? Mm -hmm. So lifestyle changes include just kind of paying attention to caffeine intake, um, really no nicotine use, no drug use, um, drinking lots of water, eating a healthy diet, exercising, and weight's a big part of it too. So, you know, we don't want the females to be underweight, but yet if they're obese or overweight, that can impact fertility too. So really trying to keep an eye on what your BMI is and trying to get to a healthy goal. How do you know if you should be getting a second opinion from another doctor, both in the beginning, kind of before you begin treatments, I'm sure, but then also let's say that you have a failed cycle or something kind of goes awry, or maybe you're not 100% happy with your clinic or your provider. How do you know when it's time to maybe ask around or talk to someone else? Mm -hmm. It's always a good idea to get a second opinion. Um, we encourage that actually you definitely want to trust your gut so if you find that you have questions or concerns and those things aren't getting answered adequately um, then absolutely go get another opinion mm -hmm. so do you have any tips or advice for couples sort of at the beginning of their journey is there anything that you would want to say to them or something that they should think about so the very beginning of the journey, I think the most important thing is communication with each other. So being open and honest about what they're feeling. Making sure that you're really aligned with your partner or even that you both are going into it open-minded. Yes. That was something that we were really surprised by was how different our opinions change based on the facts that we were getting. So at the very beginning of everything, you know, my husband, Brad, didn't even really want to do IVF. I mean, nobody mm -hmm. wants to do IVF, but he right. particularly really didn't want to do IVF. And then when we learned that that was going to be our best option, he changed his tune pretty quickly. But so we always talk about how, even though it's good to think about what are some things that I might be open-minded to and what right. might I not be, just to keep an open heart as you kind of learn more. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So what tips do you have for listeners who are still learning how to advocate for themselves? It can be tough sometimes when you're in a medical situation to maybe push back against a provider or insist on a test that maybe they don't think it's it's time to get that checked yet. Do you have any tips for people who might not feel necessarily empowered to do that? Well, the patient should be empowered. Mm -hmm. um, and you have every right to ask for you know more information or if there's a test or a procedure that you really feel strongly about absolutely bring that up and you know if if you're not getting the answers that you want um, you could always get a second opinion but absolutely you need to advocate for yourself and um, I think today in this day and age um, the healthcare profession really recognizes that it's not the doctor or the provider telling you what to do. It's really a relationship, and you walk this journey together, and you navigate your plan of care together. Yeah. Do you think that now with the availability of all of this medical information through the internet and Dr. Google and all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff, do you think that ends up helping patients feel more educated with what's going on, or do you think it can make things more confusing? I think it can go both ways. So yes, it can absolutely give patients a lot of information, and there is a lot of great info out there. Just make sure you're looking at trusted, reputable sources and sites. 
Um, I think where it can get a little bit of a slippery slope is some of the blogs that are out there because anybody can be an expert on the internet and they may portray themselves as an expert, but yet they don't have the experience maybe actually in the medical profession or in that medical field with the research piece of it or the day-to-day treatment. Yeah, I think it's a really important thing to remember too, especially when we talk about like these Facebook groups and people who are sharing a lot of information about maybe what worked or didn't work for them. And I think it's really easy to Mm -hmm. be looking for some kind of like magical solution for what you're dealing with, when in reality, everyone's body is different. Everyone's body reacts differently to all different types of meds and all different things. So I think it's just important to remember that while it's great to hear other people's stories, it's really just applicable to them and not necessarily like blanket advice for everybody. Absolutely. Yes, because even the same patient, if they do the exact same protocol and medications for another cycle, they may not respond the same way. And so yes, no two cycles are ever the same, let alone um, when you compare patients to each other. Which really is crazy. I mean, you would just expect Mm -hmm. if nothing's really shifted a lot, Mm -hmm. especially if you're doing cycles back to back, where maybe not a lot of time has passed or you haven't really done that much in your lifestyle to warrant some kind of huge change. Yeah, I imagine that could be like really either surprising in a positive way or unsettling to see some big shift. It can be. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you can't predict um, which turn that cycle may take. Mm -hmm. And so what do you say to patients when they're kind of dealing with the shock of something that goes sideways or that they weren't expecting? I mean, we're just open, honest, trying to talk about how things were looking at the point, you know, leading up to that and then maybe where it took a different turn. And then just um, coming up with solutions. Um, What do we do next? Or what would we try if we did another cycle? Or um, what can we hope for as a result from this? Do you think that there are efficiencies with staying with the same clinic for multiple cycles? Like, do you think that there are some benefits gained from you have one failed cycle and then um, sticking with that same provider in that same clinic versus kind of jumping ship and trying to find mm-hmm. someone else? There certainly can be. But if you decide you want to try another clinic, um, you know, it's so important to bring all those medical records over to the new clinic where you're starting so they can really pour through that cycle, see what medications, what doses you were on, and how things looked. So as someone who sees a lot of patients who are probably struggling emotionally as they're trying to navigate this and probably feeling a little raw and oversensitive to everything that's going on, um, how do you think people in their lives can best support them or what can you do to find the emotional support you need? Yeah, so you really have to try to find people that you can be open with and honest and to communicate with. Um, You really want to get those feelings out, how you're feeling, what emotions you're going through, and just to have someone validate that and understand um, where you're coming from. And so it might be a spouse, it could be a family member, maybe some friends have had similar experiences or they really want to support you in this journey. Um, Maybe reaching out to a counselor, um, that's certainly an option. And then Fruitful Fertility, I love how they partner you with a mentor. So somebody that has gone through this process and they're there for you and they're a resource and they can be a phone call away, a text, an email away, um, and just kind of help you through those rough days and then celebrate the little victories along the way. Awesome. Thanks so much for being here today, Margaret. We really appreciate it. Yes, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. To learn more about what kinds of questions to ask at your first fertility clinic consultation, click the show notes. 
You'll see a link to a blog post we wrote that includes all kinds of great tips and suggestions. Thanks so much. That was Been There, Injected That. It is a new podcast produced by Fruitful Fertility, hosted by myself, Elise Ash. Thanks for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe, please rate us, check out our website, send us an email, let us know what you're liking, what you're not liking, what you want more of, what you want less of. This is something new to us, and we are just excited to be helping spread the word. So thank you so much.